When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What causes poverty? This year's Economics Nobel Prize winners have spent their careers trying to find out. There's no sense in which we need to find a silver bullet for poverty. We need to find the set of silver pellets that will shoot down all these different enemies. And dealing with the fallout of Europe's biggest money laundering scandal. The scale is huge. Uh, Nobody knows quite how big because investigations are still going on. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. First up, what causes poverty? Why do some countries remain poor while others grow rich? It's perhaps the most important question in economics and one of the hardest. Three economists have fundamentally changed our understanding of poverty and how it can be remedied. They've just won a Nobel Prize for it. Michael Kramer is Professor of Developing Societies at Harvard and is with me in the studio now. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. And Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee both hold economics professorships at MIT. They join us on the line. Hello, Esther and Abhijit. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi, congratulations. (laughs) So this is the first time you've spoken since you've all won, is that right? That's right, that's right. How are you all feeling? I'm very happy. Excellent. Very good. I did try to call you yesterday and your phone was always busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, look you know, forward I'm, to I, I'm the person who gave your Skype contact to the Swedish people. Oh, well, thank They couldn't you. reach you. I was on my bike. But I... <laughs> so, Esther, um, let's start with you. What first drew you to the question of what causes poverty? So for me, it started uh, you know, when I was a kid. My mom was a doctor, still is a doctor, I guess, and uh, spent time uh, working with an NGO that helped children victims of wars. As it turns out, right now, in fact, she's in Guatemala. That sort of drew my attention to the fact that there were some children who had completely different lives from me. Of course, I had no idea what to do about it. And then many years later, I discovered economics and I thought, oh, that's one thing I could do. And this is how I came into economics quite late, actually, into my college career, because I had no idea economics was potentially interested in such issues. And Abhijit, can I ask you the same question? What, what drew you to the field? You know, I grew up in Kolkata, really, really, really at the edge of a slum. We were perfectly comfortably middle class, but the, the slum was literally next door. So, I mean, I kind of knew how other people lived in very different ways from the very beginning. Then I studied economics and I found basically no connect between the the narrative of the lives I I was exposed to and uh, what I was getting in economics. I think at some point in my life as an economist, I figured that, you know, I need to make that connection. And Michael, you started running field experiments in the 1990s. What did the field of development economics look like when you started that research? I think most of economic analysis of developing countries was done um, with 
data sets that uh, had been collected by by other people often. The economists would analyze that data. I don't want to exaggerate. There were you know, wonderful researchers who were using that technique, but there are other researchers who are going out and collecting data themselves. But I think that one of the reasons why why this approach has been so powerful is because it involves researchers directly on the ground working with farmers, with teachers, with nonprofit organizations, with developing country governments as they try to take on the challenges that they're facing. Tell us a little bit about what it was that you chose to do differently and what the sort of the new approach was. So I had I had spent uh, a, a year teaching secondary school in Kenya. And I went back and I met a friend of mine, a Kenyan friend of mine who was working for a nonprofit organization. And they they were just starting work in a new region of the country. They weren't sure what the best approach was. We came up with the idea that it might be worth trying several different things and actually systematically comparing the effects of different approaches on education. And was there a reaction from your contemporaries when you, you moved your research from university and you sort of set up base in Kenya? Was that sort of seen as a, a big departure? Uh, well, one of my contemporaries was was uh, was Abhijit, but he was very enthusiastic about it. And of course, that was uh, very encouraging. So, Abhijit, I wanted to bring you in. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you think about the research questions and how you define your experiments. At some broad level, there is a, a set of theories that we either formally or informally refer to all the time. And somewhere those those theories connect to reality and i think one of the things that this approach allows us to do is to pick the place where that intersection happens one of the things that the experimental approach does is uh, very well is allows you to vary it feature by feature and so you sort of try try out different things and you you see what particular element of that takes and that's that's a, often a very good way to enrich your hypothesis. So this is the problem. That solution didn't work very well. Would there be, if that's really the problem, would, would there be another solution that would work even better? And so it, it sort of has a, a lot of built-in internal dynamic that takes you from question to question and towards a richer understanding of the subject. And Esther, if you were to give an example of that experimental approach working really well, what would it be? Well, I'll pick an example of feminization in India. So immunization is one of the most uh, effective and cost-effective ways to, to save lives. And there have been progress immunization, but still 25 million kids go without the essential immunization every year. The presumption is that the big problem is if people are not immunizing their children is because it's difficult, it's far, it's expensive somehow. And so most of the work of the, the, the government has been to try to get the immunization services as close to the people as possible and as reliable as possible. But spending time in the field, we kind of came to the conclusion that it was not just supply. It's also about uh, people's demand. People tell you that they want to immunize their kids. It's very much within, within their plans. But for whatever reason, it's not happening. It's because it's never particularly urgent. There is no hurry, right? Because it's preventing some future disease that might or might not appear sometime in the future. And when something is not urgent for people whose lives are dominated by any number of urgent crises at any point in time, then you might not really get to ever do it. And so what they did is that they took 120 villages 
where the immunization rates were about 5%, and they randomly selected half of them, 60, and in those 60, they took over the immunization services from the government. Perfect delivery of services. Once a month, rain or shine, no matter what happens, you have immunization at your doorstep. Secondly, is in half of those 60 villages, 30 randomly selected, in addition, they introduced small incentives for people to get their kids immunized in the form of one kilo of lentils for each shot and a set of plates for completing the immunization services. And in control villages where we did nothing in particular, in status quo villages, the immunization rate was 5%. In villages where they had the supply intervention but no demand intervention, uh, immunization rate climbed to 12%. In villages where they had both, it further climbed to 37%. It's cheaper to give incentive than not to give incentive because when you have incentive there, you have more people coming. So the nurse works harder, so her salary is spread across more kids. So the cost per immunization was actually halved in villages where we had the incentive. We now have a policy recommendation that we can work with. And it was also successful from an intellectual point of view because it really kind of drew the attention on the fact that even when people want to do something and when in principle all the conditions are, are realized, that's not sufficient and we have to understand exactly why. That's absolutely fascinating. Michael, I wanted to ask you, how easy is it to take policy recommendations like this and encourage governments to, to act on those recommendations? If we think about this example that Esther has just been discussing, you know, there was a time when a lot of policymakers thought it was very important to charge for health care and they felt that if you didn't charge for things, people wouldn't value it. What we've now seen in a variety of contexts, the immunization uh, case, but but also looking at mosquito nets, work by uh, Pascaline Dupas and Jessica Cohen, uh, uh, work I've been involved on on water, across all of these contexts, very small barrier of cost can have an enormous effect on take-up. Having the scientific evidence, I think, was played an important role for a lot of policymakers. And now, you know, mosquito nets are being distributed uh, for, uh, for free, and you know, malaria rates in Africa have plummeted. Policymakers do respond to evidence, and um, you know, one of the exciting things about this work is that what we're finding, context after context, is that. Poverty is not the intractable problem that it's often made out to be, that there are very concrete, practical, often very inexpensive steps that can be taken to address it. Abhijit, on that final point, to what extent can we take individual findings and, and work out a sort of a general answer to the question of why poverty exists, why some people are poor and not others? I think it's a mistake to think of poverty as being one problem. It's a kind of accretion of different problems which feed on each other and sometimes make the whole thing worse. But often it's a series of problems and you want to, rather than sort of feeling that you need a, a kind of a conceptual sense of what poverty is, you want to have a sense of what the problem is. And this particular family, the problem might be they have just no assets and it's hopeless to try to do anything if you have no assets. But in a different family, it might well well be that the ability to start a business is is impaired by, let's say, the politics. And yet another family, it may well be that it's just that they have so much ill health in the family that it's very hard for them to be productive. So I, I think that we, we really, there's no uh, no sense in which we need to find a silver bullet for, for poverty. We need to find the set of 
you know, whatever, silver pellets that will uh, shoot down all these different enemies. Uh, thank you. I enjoyed silver pellets very, very much. Um, I wanted to move on a couple of questions on economics as a profession. And I think economists have got quite a bad rap over the past decade. So we're all wonks. We're stuck in our mo- unrealistic models. We fail to foresee the financial crisis. Do you think your reward helps rehabilitate the, the profession's reputation? Michael, let me ask you that first. I think that economists are realizing that uh, that are the models that we have capture some aspects of reality, but uh, but not all of them. And we're trying to learn from other fields. And you know, in particular, there's been a huge movement in economics to try to incorporate insights from psychology, the behavioral economics movement. And I think there are a lot of other fields uh, that we also have a lot to learn from. And I, I hope we will continue to uh, to learn in, uh, in the future. Hopefully, it's good advertisement in the sense that I think the economics profession has been a little bit I think unfairly judged. The economics profession has been actually rather bad at self-presentation. They, I feel like a lot of people, there's a whole body of work for the last 20 years in many fields of economics, which actually is extremely powerful as a way of looking at the world. There's... I mean, the psychology piece of it is one of it, but just in labor economics, in international trade, in in growth, I think there is work that's actually extremely useful, but often not presented to the world as such. It's it's actually been very good 20 years where evidence has confronted a lot of our prejudices and has changed our mind. Esther, you're the youngest person ever to receive the prize. Um, You're also only the second woman to receive it. Do you see yourself as a role model? What advice would you give to a young person starting out in the field? I do believe in in the role model uh, paradigm. I think it does matter to have people out there who who have succeeded and uh, who have been rewarded by this incredible honor. The other thing, and that's from all three of us and from the topic of the prize, is that another reason why I think there are fewer women who decide to do economics is some of the young women have exactly the illusion that Abhijit was talking about, thinking economists are, you know, terrible people who who just uh, are interested in making money for the big corporations. And I think demonstrating that actually economists work on all sorts of issues and some of them even potentially useful for for society at large and for the poor in particular might also encourage vocations, hopefully not just among women, but among also minorities, uh, which are even more underrepresented in economics than women are. Abhijit, Esther and Michael here in the studio. Thanks very much and congratulations again. Delighted. Good to connect to uh, Esther and Abhijit. Yes, yes. You can read more about their work in our free exchange column in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Next up. 
European banks are embroiled in money laundering scandals. The money, largely originating from Russia and other former Soviet countries, has been passing through some of the Nordic region's biggest lenders. Some of the worst cases appear to involve Denmark's Danske Bank and Sweden's Swedbank. The numbers are staggering. Danske Bank alone processed more than $200 billion worth of suspicious funds through its small Estonian branch. Since news of the scandal broke, Danske's chief of Estonian operations stepped down, and he has since been found dead. It's Europe's biggest money laundering scandal, and now banks and regulators are dealing with the fallout. Matthew Valencia is The Economist's special assignments editor. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Rachina. Matthew, tell us more about the scale of Nordic Bank's money laundering problem. The short answer is the scale is huge. Uh, Nobody knows quite how big because investigations are still going on. But um, the biggest scandal seems to be swirling around Danske Bank. This has been going on for a year or more. And um, the money laundering scandal um, revolves around its Estonian branch, which was a small branch. It only had about 14 or 15 employees. And it looks as if huge amounts of uh, suspect money potentially being laundered was going through that small branch and then from there into financial centres in Europe and elsewhere, including on the other side of the Atlantic in the United States. Danska produced a, um, a report which was quite thorough, so that has sort of um, helped things along. But authorities on both sides of the Atlantic are looking into that. And then there are a bunch of other banks which are also embroiled in similar scandals. Um, there's Swedbank from Sweden, Nordea, which is based in Helsinki and is a sort of pan-Scandinavian lender. And it's really quite striking that, you know, a number of the banks that are sort of in deepest here are are from the Nordic region. How have the Nordic banks ended up in this situation? Well, that's a really interesting question, because obviously it's a place where, you know, we think of banks and companies and everyone really as being quite ethical, being um, uncorrupt, where you would imagine that this sort of thing couldn't happen. But it has. And one theory that's being put forward is that these banks had sort of perhaps rested on their laurels a bit. They hadn't had scandals for a long time. They were seen as not only by the public, but by regulators as well as being um, relatively clean institutions and, you know, took their foot off the pedal a bit and ended up with money laundering and financial crime controls that were maybe not as robust as those of banks in other parts of Europe, in the United States and elsewhere that have had more scandals and have had to up their game and adjust accordingly. And how have the banks since responded to the revelations? Well, differently from each other is the short answer. So Danske has come out with a thorough report and really laid it out. And it was the bank itself that came up with this very large number of over $200 billion of suspicious funds. So they've done a lot of work. They had an outside law firm that looked into that. And they're policy, it seems, is to be as transparent as possible, you know, having been caught out. uh, The feeling at the top of the bank seems to have been, let's get this out, let's be transparent, and, you know, hopefully we can regain confidence and recover. In the case of Swedbank, for example, very different. Swedbank so far has been rather tight-lipped. It came out with a report that it did very quickly, but it was by general consent seemed to be very shallow. So there's been a lot of criticism of the bank. Uh, It's subsequently been reluctant to come out with um, more information about what may or may not have happened. And so there's a a sort of stark contrast between the, uh, the approaches of those two banks. Now, the fact that so much money was laundered through Nordic bank branches looks bad for the banks, but it also looks bad for the regulators. Have they failed in their duties? To some extent they have, because 
you know, the regulators have multiple roles, but one of them is to look at anti-money laundering controls. And, you know, clearly, given the scale of these scandals, there was failure at the regulators. There are arguments about um, who exactly was to blame and how much. Uh, in the case of Danske, for example, you have a Danish bank. It's regulated by the Danish FSA, but the money was running through a branch in Estonia, which is overseen by the Estonian FSA. And there've been a number of anti-money laundering directives, EU directives, and up till the last one, it wasn't quite clear exactly where responsibility lay. It's a little bit clearer now, but there are still uh, arguments between regulators and among experts as to exactly, you know, who's supposed to be doing what when it comes to branches in one country of, of banks based in another. But clearly there were regulatory failings. Do you think there are lessons for European regulators uh, from America? American regulators are notoriously strict when it comes to whacking fines on misbehaving banks. Yes, they are. And um, you could argue that in some cases, the Americans have gone over the top uh, and been a little bit too aggressive. On the other hand, you know, fines generally in Europe are really rather paltry. Fines for banks that transgress and also sanctions against individuals. And um, again, in Estonia, the maximum amount that the regulator can fine a bank for uh, money laundering lapses has just gone up into something like the low millions. I mean, it's, it's a very small amount um, for a bank of any size. So it seems to me that the Europeans do need to increase the level of penalties as a deterrent. And, you know, there's also a debate around whether they need to centralise some of the anti-money laundering um, supervision. The European Central Bank has been mentioned as one place uh, where such an agency could sit. I don't think the ECB is terribly keen on that. There are others who say, no, it should remain closer to the banks at the national level. And maybe the best thing is to, you know, if you're going to centralise anything, create a sort of database of information about um, bank clients, about transactions, and, you know, have everyone sort of look at that and share information, but don't create a sort of full-on, all-singing, all-dancing um, anti-money laundering agency, which, you know, could end up being another very large bureaucracy. Matthew, do you think Nordic banks can come back from this scandal? I think they can. I think it will take time. I think if you look at Danska, its share price has been clobbered. It's um, a small fraction of where it was before the crisis. But on the other hand, I think investors, you know, they look across the banking landscape and they see that, you know, a large number of the big banks that have been caught out at some time or other with big um, scandals related to money laundering, uh, sanctions busting, terrorist finance and other, other sort of financial crimes. So they can come back from it, but it will take several years. Matthew Valencia, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachina. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.